Hello, I'm Nick Anastasi, Marketing Director with PWGC, and welcome to the PWGC Environmental Echo Podcast. Today, we will be discussing groundwater, the first of three topics related to water quality on Long Island. Joining me today is PWGC President and CEO, Paul Boyce, PE and PG. Welcome, Paul. Hey, thanks, Nick. Glad to be here. Paul, at PWGC, we work with water on a daily basis, whether it's uh, surface water, stormwater, groundwater. On today's topic, we're going to focus on groundwater in terms of its, since it is such a hot topic here on Long Island and in the New York City region, New York metropolitan region, I should say, um, in terms of its availability of supply to its cost, to the treatment required due to the discovery of emerging contaminants and legacy contaminants. This podcast will discuss a variety of issues facing uh, our groundwater uh, on Long Island. And Paul, I'd like to start with the first question since many of our listeners uh, don't understand uh, the uniqueness of Long Island in regard to its groundwater. Can you discuss where our our water comes from and how it gets to the tap? Sure, I mean, you start with, you know, you're, you're asking about groundwater but it comes from the air, all right? It starts as precipitation, essentially. You know, condensation in the atmosphere that precipitates down, hits the earth, either as rain or snow or whatever it's gonna be in, in a liquid form, and eventually it percolates through the earth uh, and makes its way to the water table. Now, a lot of people don't understand or appreciate that when we talk about groundwater, it's not a giant cavern down beneath Long Island or a big open void or a lake or a river or a stream. Or, it is solid earth. All right, from where you're standing down to whatever it could be, from a couple hundred feet to almost 2,000 feet down to bedrock, depending where you are on Long Island. And that is just filled with sand, gravel, silt, clay, combinations and mixtures of those. And that material is porous. You know, and I've, I've explained this to people in the office, um, you know, maybe some of our administrative folks who, who don't really get, you know, work with it like we do. Uh, but those pores, you know, the, 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 the particles of soil, they're not perfectly cubed and they don't fit together, you know, side by side like... Uh, like bricks in a, in, a, in a wall or in, in like the Egyptian pyramids. We, you know, it's not perfectly like that. They're, they're rounded, they're angular, and they have voids when they lay next to each other. And in those voids, when they get saturated, they're filled with water, okay? And that's what the groundwater is. It's the water that's sitting in the ground, not in a giant cavern or, or big open space beneath us. The island is not floating. We are connected solidly to bedrock. We're not gonna drift away, um, but there is water in the, in that, that saturates those voids. The unsaturated stuff, so what's the unsaturated zone? That's that's the dry stuff before you hit the water table. Understood, understood. Now, could you could you quickly explain the the difference or the uniqueness of Long Island in regard to where our water comes from versus maybe some other parts of the country or New York City? Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, people may have heard the term sole source aquifer, all right? So all the water here in Nassau and Suffolk County, all of it that we get that comes out of our taps, okay? comes out of the faucets, it comes out of the shower head, it goes into your dishwasher, your washing machine, your hose bibs, um, the toilet, the sink, whatever. All that stuff's coming out of the ground, all right? It's, a, it's what we call aquifers. If you look at Long Island, um, almost like a layer cake, all right? We've got multiple aquifers. We've got shallow ones, we've got deep ones. You know, um, you start off with the, with the uppermost and you work your way all the way to the bottom. You know, there's, there's four primary or principal aquifers. Okay, um, and it's just a matter of where you are on the island, where you're, you're pulling the water from, or pumping it out of the earth to get it to those, um, you know, fixtures in your home, or be it a hydrant in the street, or, or an elevated storage tank that you might see in your, your local water district. Um, you know, and, and people often take this for granted. You know that you know you are standing on top of your water supply. 
okay? It's under your building. It's under your parking lot. You're driving on it. You're working on it. You're playing on it. So, you know, you got to just realize how precious or precarious that situation can be, you know, depending on what you're doing, um, where you are, you know, what you're working with, you know, all of it, you know, as I said, if it just how porous the ground can be. You know, if you pick yourself on the beach, which is interesting, I tell people, and you take that cup of water and you spill it out on the sand, what happens? It's not being absorbed like the earth's a sponge. It's making its way down through those pores, and you see how quickly that stuff dissipates and gets to the earth, you know, at least in the sand like that. It's a nice, you know, uniform sand, but in other areas you may have tighter formations and it'll take longer, but there are places where the stuff, when you dump it or spill it, it ends up on the surface, it can get down to the water table quicker than you think, and you can have a real serious problem. That's very interesting. Now, how, now how do we differ from the uh, way New York City gets its water from, I believe, from reservoirs. Absolutely. New York City is primarily um, surface water. All right. So that is stuff that's flowing into those giant lakes and reservoirs upstate uh, in the, uh, you know, Catskill Mountains, the Delaware River Water Gap, whatever, you know, they've got a couple of them. But if you think of the Catskill Mountains upstate where they have those protected watersheds, that's just all surface runoff that ultimately flows in there. There may be some groundwater uh, contributions, but primarily, you're seeing a lot of just surface water, you know, collecting there, and that's what they use for their drinking water. And there are some differences. You'll see differences in quality, okay? What can get into the surface water a lot more readily as opposed to what can get into the groundwater. You know, you talk about some of the surface runoff up there. You may have road salting operations this time of year. Those salts can end up in there. Uh, you could have waterfowl. You may have recreation activities taking place on top of those water bodies like boating and fishing. You know, and think of the things that could end up getting in there that, you know, obviously New York City is doing a great job treating the water. They're, they're always, uh, you know, top water quality provider in the United States, as are the, the water providers here on Long Island as well. On Long Island, um, with it being a sole source aquifer, you know, is there, should there be any concern as to the amount of water that's available? How much is there? Oh, man, that's, that's, that's a question that a lot of people ask me. You know, after I get through telling them we're not sitting on an, an, an infinite supply of water. You know, it's not that giant cavern. It's, you know, you can do some calculations. And the uh, Long Island Commission for, for Aquifer Protection, uh, LICAP, they've got some really good reports. Uh, we worked on, you know, the geothermal portion of their, you know, LICAP, the aquifer management plan. Um, but they, they, they do a little analysis where they try to give you a, a calculation of, you know, how much groundwater might there be beneath Long Island, you know. Um, and if you look at Long Island as just Nassau and Suffolk as opposed to Brooklyn, Queens, Nassau, and Suffolk, there's some differences. But we'll, for right now, we'll just limit it to Nassau and Suffolk, all right, for Long Island. Um, they estimate somewhere is on the order of like 65 trillion gallons of water, groundwater, beneath the island. Um, and, and again, I explained that's from the surface down to the bedrock, and the bedrock sloped, all right? It's much more shallow on the North Shore as opposed to it is on the South Shore. It's like I said, it could be a couple hundred feet to bedrock on the North Shore. Mm -hmm. And then on the South Shore, you can see it 1,800 to almost 2,000 feet in some spots. All right, so as it pitches down and that porous material, all right? Remember I mentioned those pores in the sand? It's on average, you get about a 30% porosity. So that means when you pick up a handful of, say, dry sand or soil out of your backyard, you know, and, and you have it as undisturbed as you can get it, it's going to be about 30% air, mm -hmm. all right, in theory. Okay. All right. Now, there have been uh, many news stories uh, in the region that have focused on the discovery and prevalence of, of emerging, emerging contaminants, as well as those legacy contaminants that have been there for uh, some time. What are they, and, and, and 
Well, let, let, let's start with that. What are they? What are it, it, the most relevant or prevalent uh, emerging contaminants that we're facing at the moment? Oh, gosh. Uh, there, there's a few. Um, but, you know, the, the, the real hot topics lately you've seen in the papers and on the, in the news and the TV would be the uh, PFO, PFAS type stuff. Those are uh, really the some of the bigger contributors would have been like firefighting foams, you know, where fire departments, whether it be at airports or whatever, they use the foams to put out the fires. That's one source where you may have seen and those long chain type of... Uh, and the PFO or PFAS, those are <coughs> perfluorinated compounds? You got it. You know, don't ask me to spell out the whole <laughs> thing because that's why it's abbreviated like that. But yes, and they are long chain compounds too, and it's they're interesting. And, um, and what are some of the others? The other the other real hot topic is that 1,4-dioxane that you guys have heard, and that's uh, that was a stabilizer in, I believe... Oof, uh, solvents like a TCE or a TCA, I'm not sure which exactly which one. Uh, you also find stuff like 1,4-dioxane in like um, you may have seen it in some uh, laundry detergents, you know, and all over the other place, uh, other places. And what's difficult about that, and we're seeing it everywhere, is if it wasn't stuff, say like a laundry detergent, you know, uh, out in Suffolk County where it's not sewered, you know, what happens when you get done with your laundry? All that stuff washes down goes into your sanitary receptic system out in the front yard or your backyard or wherever it is on your property. And what did I tell you about how water gets from the air down to the water table? It's going to percolate through the earth, reach the water table, and it's going to take some of those contaminants with it. And it gets into the water supply. And what's being done to remedy these these issues? That's that's a tough one. Um, you've got to treat it. You know, if it's, if it's in the water, it, we cannot absolutely can't you know you don't, you don't want to be passing it along to the consumer you know you don't want people drinking this stuff as, as minimize it as possible there have been standards set which you know um down to the parts per trillion you know and when you guys talk about trillions i mean it's it, it's almost hard to fathom you know they're throwing around trillion dollar you know um, stimulus packages on the tv like it's not a big deal right. uh it, it, trillions is insane right. all right and when you talk about parts per trillion you know if I had a trillion pennies and only one of those pennies was a bad penny out of those trillion pennies, the chances of you ever encountering it or finding it are going to be very slim, right? right? Uh, just picture how many, you know, it's incredible. Um, but as far as removing or treating those, those emerging contaminants, uh, the PFO or PFAS stuff, we're, I don't want to say we're fortunate to be dealing with that stuff in any respect, but uh, it's readily removed with like um, conventional treatment systems that we've been using for for a long time, like granular activated carbon (GAC), mm -hmm. what people may often refer to as a charcoal filter. All right, it's it's, it's an organic type of material that it will absorb those contaminants right out of the, out of the water or the solution. Uh, and the 1,4-dioxane, that is a little trickier. All right, that doesn't come out of uh, solution or out of, out of the water as easily. We're using what we call advanced oxidation processes, where we try to break down the molecules and uh, you know then pull them out using or destroy them using um, you know ultraviolet light and uh, hydrogen peroxide, and then ultimately maybe a carbon filter or something or whatnot to, to get all the all the pieces or parts out of the water. And that that is costly. It's expensive. It's not cheap to maintain. So you know as the local water suppliers are trying to address this, you know you, you got to imagine. You know, where's all this money going to come from? You know, obviously there's going to be lawsuits and, and this and that to, you know, go after the responsible parties as there should be. But, um, you know, we got to address this immediately. And you guys know lawsuits and whatnot can take years and years and years to, 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 to get that. So we can't wait. But it, it is not cheap. It's not easy. Some of it can be energy intensive. You know, um, it's not something we anyone wants to look forward to dealing with. 
Paul, is this an evolving issue in terms of the technology that's that's being <clears throat> developed? You know, we're being we're we're now able to to look at uh, issues that in in parts per trillion. Where does this end? Yeah, right. Where does it end? You know, you know, parts per billion is one times ten to the minus nine. Parts per trillion is one times ten to the minus twelve. You know, it it's just, and again, I, I'm telling you guys, it's it's just the. The, the scale of this is it's it's almost unfathomable um, as technology keeps advancing I, I don't know <laughs> quite honestly um, parts per trillion you know when I started doing this you know two three decades ago it wasn't wasn't even fathomable back then you know parts per billion you're like oh wow now we're parts per trillion you know what's next right and then you alluded to it before but the costs associated with this some some of these remedies are are relatively inexpensive in regard to the uh, PFO or PFAS issue with the granularly uh, activated charcoal. But as you alluded to before, the the, the other uh, remedy for 1,4-dioxin is, is very expensive. Yep. How can we how can we prepare now to deal with emerging contaminants that we're bound to discover in the future? <laughs> my, my first step is prevention. You know, let's not get there. As I, when I started this conversation, I mentioned we're standing on top of our water supply. We're working on it. We're playing on it. We're living on it. You know, anything you do has the potential to affect the groundwater. You know, the idea is don't let that stuff get into the water. You know, aquifer protection. If we could do that, we wouldn't have these. This, this wouldn't even be a discussion. You know, what's coming up or what's what's my crystal ball saying? You know, I mean, years ago in different areas, you know, the hot topics became lead, asbestos, mold, PCBs. Um, you know, now we're onto these emerging contaminants like this stuff. Uh, a few years back, it was personal care products. You know, as I mentioned, like laundry detergent going down the sink. Well, you brush your teeth, you rinse, you shave your face, you wash your hair. You know, right. uh, you take medications and they go through your body and right. they end up going into your, you know, front yard and ultimately down to the groundwater. And then what happens? You know, how are we supposed to even know what's out there? You know, um, those are tough questions to answer, you know, what's coming up next and what should we do to, to uh, be better prepared for it? Because I, I, you know, I wish I knew it was around the corner, you know, so I could come up with a solution in advance. But my, my, my best thing to tell you is, you know, let's not get there, right. you know, prevention. Well, there's a wonderful segue to my next question in that um, much of Long Island, uh, much of Suffolk County, I should say, uh, is not on uh, sewers or commercial wastewater collection and treatment systems. So what, you, yep. what you're saying in terms of the chemicals going straight into the ground um, obviously is, is, is very accurate. And, but one of the uh, other issues that the region is facing is related to nitrogen and, oh, yeah. and, your, and, your, and your septic system. Does, does, is nitrogen impacting uh, the groundwater is in the same way that the other emerging and legacy it, contaminants it, are? Uh, yep. And nitrogen's got a standard drinking water standard, too. Um, you don't want to be consuming, you know, copious amounts of nitrogen. It's not going to be good for you, okay? Uh, also, it has other effects besides the, you know, human health. There are environmental effects. The groundwater and the surface water here on Long Island are all sort of interconnected. You know, you guys have seen the brown tides and the fish die-offs and, uh, you know, the, the blue algae and the blue-green algae, the cyanobacteria, all that stuff. Um, nitrogen is a nutrient. So when it's out there in the environment, you know, not only is it can be harmful to human beings, it's harmful to the environment in those large amounts. And we have been, you know, uh, you know, since the post-World War II boom out here on Long Island with, you know, development, you know, and the lack of sewers. So stuff's been going into the ground for 60, 70, 80 years, you know. 
how long is it going to take to get that stuff back out? You know, and as it got worse and worse, you know, you got more and more. Um, so it's 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 a it's a problem we have to address. We should have been addressing this a long time ago. Paul, municipalities across Long Island are working to address the nitrogen issue. Um, Suffolk County's uh, Reclaim Our Water program comes to mind. Uh, what types of projects have you uh, been a part of that have uh, worked to improve this situation? Yeah, it's Nick, it's been pretty diverse. We have worked from the residential level all the way up to the municipal level to, you know, get involved with this. To, and it goes right along with our mission, you know, to provide, be a leading provider for those environmental services for, uh, for a sustainable and resilient future. Um, if we don't protect the groundwater now, you know, it's, it's not going to get any better. Um, so what we have done, you know, if you look at the residential level, uh, they have what they call these innovative alternative on-site wastewater treatment systems, IA systems for short. Uh, and what that is, it's, it's to reduce the amount of nitrogen coming out of your house and basically making its way to the groundwater. Um, it's not going to remove 100%. It's going to remove it down to a, a much lower level than it would untreated. Um, it does take a little bit of a, an appetite to do it because it's going to cost some money to, to put the system in, to have it designed, um, and maintenance. You know, it's a, it's a mechanical, biological process to help break down some of the nitrogen before it makes its way to the water table. Uh, at a grander scale, and which is certainly more effective because it will remove all the nitrogen, is sewering. And we are working on a couple of uh, county projects, Suffolk County projects, to sewer certain portions of the county. Um, and that'll be a, a collection system, you know, hooking people up, taking them off their septic systems, putting them on sewers, which will eventually flow to uh, existing county sewage treatment plants. Um, and they treat it down to less than 10 milligrams per liter of, of nitrogen. And then there is a, take like a, a plant like Bergen Point in uh, Babylon area, okay? That has an, an offshore outfall. And they're currently redoing that that outfall. It's uh, two or three miles offshore, um, and so whatever nitrogen's left, it's going out into the ocean. It's not going into our, our groundwater. Um, you know, as the surfer in me, you know, I, I have separate <laughs> issues with that. But um, as the engineer and the guy that has to live here on Long Island and drink this water, you know, sewering is a, is a terrific way to do it. Um, again, the drawbacks is. It can be very political. Uh, it is expensive. It's intrusive. We got to rip up roads. We got to disturb houses. And uh, did I say it's expensive? It's yes. expensive. All right, um, but it is very effective. You know, uh, unfortunately, we sh we should have been doing it. You know, decades ago. Um, but we are where we are, and uh, you know the time is right. And we, we do have some uh, political leaders with, with the appetite to take this on. And at PW Grocer, at PWGC, we, we are a part of that solution. And in regard to the PFOA and PFOS issue that is facing many locations on Long Island, I know that here at PW Grocer, um, we've been working with the county on a project uh, in Yapank uh, in terms of developing uh, a, a system to deal with the problem. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, they, those are county properties that are on uh, wells. You know, there are still homes that aren't hooked up to public water supply here in Suffolk County, and there's probably some, I, I'd imagine, in Nassau as well, but n not nearly as many. Um, so these, these wells have got some contamination with these PFOA, PFAS compounds, contaminants, and we've got to get them removed before people use the water, consume the water. Uh, and the way we're doing that, as we mentioned, was um, the carbon-type filtration, the filters. We call them POET filters, point-of-entry treatment. P-O-E-T, mm -hmm. you know, real creative. 
um, but they work, you know. So as it comes into the residence, we filter out those contaminants, you know. And again, this isn't a set it and forget it solution. Eventually that carbon in that, that filter is going to get depleted and it needs to be replaced or regenerated. Um, and you have to carefully sample so you know when you're getting to the point of breakthrough. And you want to get to the, you want to know before you get the breakthrough so no contaminants make it to the, to the end user. This project brings to mind something that I think uh, would be very educational for our listeners in that the, the uh, groundwater that we've been discussing is not static. Please correct me if I'm wrong. There is quote unquote groundwater flow. And so it, uh, the, the contamination of a given site, let's call it 123 Smith Street, while the contamination may take place there, the contamination can uh, uh, travel, flow, flow from one from point A to point B, uh, and obviously we're seeing this um, both at the uh, Bethpage, former Bethpage facility of North Grumman, as well as at the former Naval Weapons Reserve plant in Calverton. Yep. Could you uh, elaborate on that? Yeah, absolutely. Now you're getting really to a subject that's really near and dear to my heart, and that's like groundwater hydrology. Okay, and that is, you know, it could be fate and transport of those contaminants, or if we just want to talk about the straight hydraulics. Um, once it enters the groundwater, okay, as you mentioned, it's not static. It is a dynamic environment. Groundwater is moving, generally. I mean, it may, it's not moving as fast as you can walk or run, but it might move a, I don't know, half a foot a day to a foot a day, maybe a little faster than a foot a day, depending on where you are and the type of gradients. And what I mean by that is you may have a difference in, uh, say, pressure or head, elevation type of head, uh, and that water may move faster or slower depending on what's driving it. Paul, head being? Um, how's the best way to explain that? It's, it's a combination of elevation and pressure. But it's the, in essence, it's pressure, the pressure. Pressure head, elevation is the, head. It's the pressure putting being pushed down on top of? Essentially. Okay. All right. It's not like a, uh, you know, like a pressurized container or anything. It's just you've, water pressure is right. essentially what we're talking about. Okay. Speaking of contaminants, uh, although people may not think of it as a contaminant, um, in many instances here on Long Island, especially on the shorefront areas, there is there are issues associated with saltwater intrusion. Can you explain what that is? Absolutely. Again, another topic that I find you know fascinating, and I, I don't want to get too passionate about it, but it, it is something that I, I really I, I'm into. All right, for a variety of reasons. Um, but as you start to withdraw water from the aquifer. Okay, you're going to start to draw down water levels. You're going to decrease the pressure. Okay, the, and at the shoreline, people may have heard of the saltwater interface. All right, so that is the point where we go from freshwater to saltwater, or vice versa, depending on where you're standing. For on the landward side, we're going to be standing hopefully over the freshwater side. So on the interface, the other side would be the saltwater. As I start to remove water from the aquifer for consumptive purposes. And it is being replaced. I mean, we do have, we talked about where's it come from and how's it get there. Um, but if we start to pull out more than we're replacing it with, we'll create this deficit, all right? And that'll create this sort of this pressure gradient where the pressure offshore now is greater than inshore. And that saltwater interface can either move horizontally or vertically. So if it starts to move horizontally, it's gonna start to slide inland towards you. Hence, saltwater intrusion. Um, obviously, everybody knows you can't drink salt water, all right? Um, starts to taste salty after a, a pretty low concentrations, too. You mm -hmm. know, uh, if you guys have been in saltwater pools and stuff, you can, you know, um, or if you go out in the ocean there, it's like, you know, the chloride concentration is like 35,000 milligrams per liter. It's insane, all right? But the drinking water standard is about 250 milligrams per liter, as opposed to seawater, 
and this is you know chlorides, um, it's about thirty-five thousand. All right. So that I hope that explains. And like I said, you have the horizontal translation or movement mm-hmm. due to pumping, and you can have vertical, which often we call upconing. So if I have a well and my saltwater interface, it's not a sort of a vertical line. It's kind of like a wedge shape. All right, and I start pumping and lifting that water up or out of the aquifer, I can start to have this up cone of the interface too. So you can have horizontal translation and vertical translation. In terms of treatment for the the contaminants that may or may not be in the groundwater, um, what else is in the groundwater in terms of other other minerals? Are there other? Absolutely, Nick. There are. This it's not deionized water down there. Right. It's um, not it, simply H two O. Nope. Nope. There are naturally occurring organics and inorganics. You may have iron and manganese. Um, you may get some uh, fulvic and tannic, uh, tan- fulvic acids, tannins from like organic matter that might be present in there. Um, at low concentrations, these things are n- normal and, and not harmful. Um, but like take iron, for instance. All right. Nobody wants to take a sip of water and taste like they just drank out of a rusty can, right? Or a rusty pipe. Um, it's aesthetic, generally. Um, it's going to have smell, it's going to have taste. It can stain. You know, we've all seen uh, a ring around, say, a toilet or a, in a sink or a tub or a washing machine, and it, and it looks rusty. It's often you have high iron problems. But you do have other things just besides H2O molecules in the water. Um, and they're not harmful, uh, again, as long as they're in the, in the right concentrations. And what the water providers or purve- purveyors here in Long Island, they have standards they have to meet, and they are providing, you know, fresh, clean, potable water to everybody. Paul, earlier you had discussed um, the amount of uh, water going into the aquifer on an annual basis. How much is being pumped out? Well, you know, Nick, if we just again look at Nassau and Suffolk County, we're somewhere on the order of approaching 3 million people between those two counties. It's probably about 2.8, a little bit less. Um, and if I remember correctly, if I go back to what I mentioned, that LICAP report, you know, they, they do that state of the aquifer report every year. It's a great, great document. And LICAP is, is? The Al- Long Island Commission for Aquifer Protection. Okay. All right. Um, P.W. Grocer is a member of that. Um, we do support that. Um, but what they had written is uh, you see about 45 inches of rainfall or precipitation here on Long Island in a typical year. And on average, about half, somewhere around 22 to 23 inches, makes its way to the water table. Like I explained, it, it percolates down through the porous soil and it gets in there. So when you start to think, um, we've got eh, going on about 3 million people here on the island, how much water are we using each year? Uh, sort of referencing those reports again, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 150 billion to 200 billion gallons a year. A lot of water. Wow. All right, but when we go look back at the area of Nassau and Suffolk County and we'd say, okay, let's average it out at like 22, 23 inches of water over that area, how many gallons does that equate to? That's uh, in the neighborhood, I think, of, if I do my math right, somewhere around 300 billion. Still more than we're taking out, all right, but we are taking out a lot, you know, so we have to be careful on how we manage this very precious natural resource. Are we seeing... Or is, is LICAP seeing increases on an annual basis in uh, terms of water usage? I think it's been fairly steady for the last couple of years. I mean, if you see a drought year where we don't get that 45 inches, you know, people are going to be watering the lawn a lot harder, and you are going to use a lot more water. There will be evapotranspiration, which that's the uptake between the roots and what evaporates, and some still will make it through as, as waste as it gets back to the water table. But the, the irrigation systems... Um, they can kill you. They can really drive up your water usage. 
um, as, as, you know, as we grow as a, as a community too, more and more people, there'll be more and more usage. That's, that was my, going to be my next question. As the, as the Long Island region evolves and, and real estate development um, evolves with it, and we're seeing more and more uh, multifamily developments as opposed to the traditional single-family home being, being developed, do those types of facilities use more or less water? Uh, a little bit less, yeah, because if you're looking at then those single families, they're kind of clustered together. They don't have the, the yard, and the, they're not using as much irrigation. You know, they still may use on a, on a daily basis in terms of doing laundry and, you know, washing the, you know, bathing and cooking and cleaning. Um, and depending on what kind of facility they're in, it, it maybe it's usually a little bit less than, say, a, a, a single-family residence. Okay, so multifamily will use... On paper, uh, yep, we'll use less water per annum than a single, a traditional single-family home. Correct, understood. So, Paul, you you alluded to to conservation uh, as being a key to uh, addressing any these issues associated with water or quantity, as opposed to quality. I know that we at PWGC we work on 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 these types of projects on a daily basis. Um, what would you recommend as the best methods to to address this issue? I mean, we we do work with some uh, facilities and institutions um, in terms of helping them curb some of their consumptiveness or habits. You can look at low flow fixtures, be it a toilet, a sink, a shower. Um, those come with other issues, which may be better suited for another podcast. Again. Um, but one of the biggest ways here on Long Island is irrigation. You know, if you really want to put a dent in doing something for, you know, curbing our consumptive habits, uh, I'm not advocating for everyone to put in an artificial lawn or, you know, chop it all down and go back to the woods. But if you go back to more natural type grasses, more natural type plantings, drought resistant plantings, you know, the, the xeriscaping, if you will, uh, it's not as attractive as the green lawn but it certainly does have an impact. Thank you, Paul. That was very informative. Thank you, everyone, for joining PWGC's Environmental Echo and for discussing the importance of groundwater, the first of a three-part series. Please go to pwgrocer.com if you have any questions or comments, and also subscribe for our podcast.